0: Good morning. I'm Bob and I'm an alcoholic. I've been sober through the grace of God and Alcoholics Anonymous since the 10th of December, 1967. And for that, I'm very grateful. Uh, Linda and I would like to thank you all for the wonderful hospitality that we have received since we have been here. We we come from Minnesota, which is, uh, if this we the United States. It's in the middle of the United States, in the northernmost part, so it touches Canada. We are colder than you are. We left two feet of snow and about zero Fahrenheit to come here. And uh, we find your country surprisingly w- warmer and beautiful. It is quite spectacular. But what we find most spectacular is the warmth and the hospitality of the people that we have met. And the uh the spirit of the people in the AA and Al Anon community is uh most noted. You know, it is we have traveled many places and there's an enthusiasm that is uh delightful. And if you keep that enthusiasm you great great things will come of that. Uh, Linda and I are going to uh, share what we do, kind of back and forth. Uh, We haven't done too much of this type of sharing together, so we're going to play it a little bit by ear. I'm going to spend the first 15 or 20 minutes talking a little bit about our background, so that at least you have some idea about how this old white-haired man came to be standing in front of you. Um, I started drinking when I was uh, 13 years old, when I was in high school. Um, when I started high school, I was four foot 11 and weighed 95 pounds. I was, uh, very unsure of myself. I thought everybody else got to school an hour early and held a meeting and decided what to do for the day. And I always missed the meeting. And, uh, I thought everybody else knew what was going on, and I didn't. And uh, one night, when I was about 15, a friend of mine and I went out, and we split a fifth of whiskey, and my life changed. Uh, it was an extraordinary change. I never felt like I was part of the group. After I had the whiskey, I felt like I owned the group. Uh, it was very different. And uh, I chased alcohol very fast and very hard throughout my high school days. I went to a military school on a college campus and we drank a lot in high school. Of my five closest friends, four of us are an AA and one's an Al Anon. So we we did pretty well. Uh when I finished high school I had a reputation for having a drinking problem. I got into a lot of trouble. I got arrested, I got I made the false ID cards, uh, you know, I got sick a number of times. We A couple of us almost died of alcohol poisoning. I went away to college to get away from the authorities and my father. And uh, I drank my way out of the University of Notre Dame in the middle of my senior year. I walked out, which didn't please me or my family. And uh, in the Army, I was in ROTC, and I had to get a medical release to get out of to get out of the army and the medical release I got was for alcoholism. I was diagnosed an alcoholic when I was nineteen. And that seemed uh impossible. Here I I got into a fight one night at a party and I got my face hurt quite a bit and I got fired as a waiter. They didn't want me serving food looking like I looked, so they fired me. And I had no place to go. I was uh out of all options, and I went back to my family and asked if I could come back home. And they said if I would not drink, I could come back home. I I said I wouldn't drink. I lied, but I went back home. And uh, when I went back home, I made the largest effort I had ever made to get my act together. I didn't like being who I was. I didn't like being the family problem. I didn't like crying myself to sleep, listening to my parents argue about me. They didn't know what to do with me. You know, no one knew what to do with me. They had had me talk to a lot of people to try to help, and no one could help. And when I moved back in the house, I thought if I could change my life, change the circumstances of my life, it would be different. So I got a job. I got back together with Linda. We had gone together for two years and broken up for the last year of my drinking. And I thought that if I got a good woman in my life, that would make a big difference. And uh, we became engaged to be married. And uh, I couldn't stop drinking. You know, I just couldn't shut it down. Uh, And now I'm working in a company and I'm the company drunk. You know, I am like Rudolph the red-nosed reindeer. I'm, you know, I'm in trouble immediately. Big corporations like to have you come in on Mondays and like to have you stay on Fridays, and I'm I'm a mess. And uh, I, I quit that job after six months, and I took another job selling, which gave me more flexibility. And uh, after I had the job selling for about two months, I woke up. I one one of my friends got married, and weddings were always good for about. A week of drinking. And when, uh, I woke up in, my, in an apartment on Thursday afternoon not having been to work Monday, Tuesday, and Wednesday. And I didn't know if I had a job or a fiance or a place to live until I was married and I was just, I was done. And I called Alcoholics Anonymous. And two men came out and talked to me at a cafe. And those two men sat me down and shared their story with me. And in the process of them sharing their story with me, they changed my life. We have many traditions in AA. One of the most wonderful is which is that we share from our heart, from our experience, our strength, and our hope, not from our head. And when you do that, there's, you can help change someone's life. And they touched me. I went to my first meeting of Alcoholics Anonymous that night. And that was in August or July of nineteen sixty seven. I drank twice after that. After one month of sobriety I drank on a business trip. And after three months of sobriety I drank on our honeymoon. And the last drink I had was on our honeymoon. And uh that was I'm glad that was my last drink. And um, I'll share more of that when I tell my story tonight. But I came back and I got active in AA. And they told me in AA that alcoholism was threefold. It was physical, but it was also mental and spiritual. And that once I crossed the line from problem drinking into alcoholism, my alcoholism affected me all the time, when I drank and when I didn't drink. The idea that my alcoholism could affect me when I didn't drink was a very new idea. I thought alcoholism only affected you when you drank. They told me that what AA was was, very, was more than just not drinking. They said, have you ever stopped drinking? I said, yes. They said, did it work? I said, no. They said it didn't work for us either. What we do in AA is once we quit, we use the 12 steps to change, to find a better way to live so that we don't have to go back to drugs or booze to do something for us that we're unwilling or unable to do for ourselves. And if we don't change, we're not going to remain sober because we don't know how to live sober. That was one of the best things anybody told me. Uh, Linda and I have gone together since or since Linda's sophomore year in college. and we got married, we have three sons. 34 years old, 32 years old, and 23 years old. Linda has been an Al-Anon since July of 1967, August of 1967, and uh, that has been very important. I don't know that we would be married today if we each didn't have a program, because when things go wrong, and they do go wrong, we've turned our lasers on ourselves rather than on each other. I think we might have melted each other had we not had the program. Uh, it has been a wonderful partnership. It is, uh, we've had a lot of alcoholism in our family, but we've had a lot of recovery. And uh, we will, uh, in the process of sharing, uh, the uh, I experienced, I've been sober 36 years, so I've experienced a lot of life. In those 36 years, I'm 60 years old. I was, 20, I was one week into my 24th year when I, sober, when I got sober. Uh, I've experienced a lot of business difficulty and, and a lot of life. Uh, and I'll share more of that when I give my talk. But we have had success. You know, we've had the big houses and the Mercedes and those sorts of things. And then when I was into my business career, uh, about 12 years ago, I went broke. So, you know, I went from doing very well to not doing horribly, and now I'm back doing pretty well. So uh, being sober does not guarantee that you will ha- always have easy circumstances. It just guarantees that you will have the ability to deal with whatever circumstances that you have. So Linda and I are going to share, and uh, we're going to talk, we're going to use the steps as a structure of sharing. And I guess we're going to talk for about an hour, including this part that I just did. We'll talk for the rest of the hour. and We've been talking about 15 minutes. And, uh, and then we're going to have a question and answer period. We'll get as far into the steps as we can. And I'm going to talk, along with Linda, about the steps in, in, in two different ways. One is about how they affected me when I first came in. And the other is how they affect me today, because it's different. And I'm going to talk about some problems in sobriety, because I think that most of us that are sober, uh, we are not problem-free, and sometimes wonder about how the program applies to the daily living issues that we all have. And do uh, you think of anything else at the moment to say? Do you want to stand up here with me when I let start with one and go. Okay. The first step said that we were powerless over alcohol, but our lives had become unmanageable. And the first step, uh, I never thought I was powerless over alcohol. I knew I had trouble. I thought it was a bad ice or bad something. I didn't know what the problem was. Uh, it seemed like it was symptomatic. It seemed like alcohol was my answer, not my problem. I thought if you knew about my other problems that I had, you wouldn't think I was just an alcoholic. People would come to me and they'd say, you know, if you would stop drinking, you'd be okay. Well, most of us have stopped drinking and using for some periods in our lives, and that wasn't okay. It wasn't okay at all. Just before I went back to my senior year at school, I got in trouble and I was robbed and rolled and pistol whipped and shot at and thrown out of the second story of a hotel. I ended up in the hospital, and I went back to school for my last year, and I did not drink for three or four months. And my life didn't become perfect. It didn't become as good as I thought it was going to become. It didn't become what I thought you were telling me it would become if I wouldn't drink. And I thought I proved that I could quit and that alcohol wasn't my problem, because I did quit and my life didn't get better. Uh, and it just didn't seem, you know. But when I got to AA, you told me that alcoholism was a disease. That alcohol was only the symptom of the disease. That the disease was physical, but also mental and spiritual. And that if I was going to find permanent sobriety, which I didn't really want to find. I just wanted to get out of trouble. Most of us come here, we don't want to find. We're, we're almost as afraid that it will work as we are that it won't work. <clears throat> and... uh But today, how that affects me today, and it was, when I came in, I had a surrender. And my surrender was for about nine months. For about nine months, I would ask a question and someone would give me an answer and I believed whatever the answer was. But after about nine months, my ego started to come back alive. And when when you would answer a question, I wasn't sure you were correct. So all of a sudden, I started to assert myself in a in a in a different way. I wanted to find an expert on Bob in AA. I never found an expert on Bob. What I found is that Bob became an alcoholic, and I found experts on alcoholism. And and that was how I learned about me, not by focusing on my personality or my ego, but by focusing on the principles of Alcoholics Anonymous and the issue of alcoholism. Today, I think a lot of us, you know, when you get someone who's been sober a while and you want to help them, we all know what the answer is. The answer is surrender. But how do you tell someone how to surrender? How do you describe that? That's a very difficult thing. Most of us were surrendered by drugs and alcohol. We were beaten to a pulp. And we came in, you know, was to some level of reasonableness because of the pain of our experience. But many of us today in the program are some distance away from that pain. We, aren't, we may not be using right now. And what happens is our powerlessness goes away. And all of a sudden, we know the answer. You know, we're not powerless. We're not unmanageable. We now believe because we're sober and we have this information that we can go about and conduct our lives the way we want to conduct our lives. It's always a difficult balance because many of the changes that we have to make in sobriety, we need some aspect of being teachable. Okay? If you're not surrendered, at least partially surrendered, you aren't very teachable. It's very hard to get information. All of us have had conversations with sponsees or with friends, and we know very well what they're willing to listen to and what they're not willing to listen to. And a lot of us are not willing to listen to what we don't want to hear. And, uh, therein lies, you know, some of the problems today for us in recovery, because the universe Or your marriage, or your children, or your job will keep presenting you with what you're supposed to hear. And most of us, you know, push it away, deny it, change it. So, we aren't all that teachable, we aren't all that open, uh, and so that's one of the things sometimes when we ask ourselves why we're in trouble when we're sober, one of the reasons we're in trouble is we don't listen very well. We're not open to what, the, you know, to what we're being told by God or the universe or our families. So, I do know if you want.
1: Hi, I'm Linda, and I'm a member of Alana. Happy Valentine's Day to everybody. Um, I'm getting sort of a kick out of this. My husband, what? Oh, Stop. Okay. Um, my husband normally talks a lot faster than that, so I'm sitting over here listening to sort of this different tempo, and it, it reminds me of a joke he used to tell. <laughs> I'm not going to tell you the joke though; um, uh, it's not appropriate. Um, thank you, everyone, for this incredible opportunity in your beautiful, beautiful country. We're having a great time. Uh, step one. I'm I'm sort of trying to look at this from the only eyes I have, which, of course, are the eyes of the al and how Step 1 came in. And so I've been trying to sort of, um, I've been praying a lot, but also trying to think of, of times when I really felt like I surrendered. And um, there's one that's really profound, and it's, um, we have, as Bob said, we have three kids, and, and uh, they're all in the program. And our middle son, um Probably was the most difficult, although Dan gave him a pretty good run for his money. But he was, I think, the most difficult for me, maybe. And I used to say, if you don't run around with her, or if you didn't hang out with him, you'd be okay. And I would not want him to have certain friends over, because I knew that when those friends were around, that Peter was using more um, I would refer to his friends as losers. If you didn't hang around with the losers, you wouldn't be the way you are. And the day came, and it was a hard day, when I realized that Peter was a loser. And Peter was hanging around with exactly the people he needed to hang around with to do exactly the things that he wanted to do. And it was one of those days when it was like someone hit me, you know, but it was a real surrender. And I knew that no longer did he have the choice. No longer did could I deny the fact that he had a problem and that he clearly was making the choices based on a disease. And it was a surrender for me. I realized it was unmanageability, but I certainly realized that I had absolutely no power. And um Alcoholics get beaten down by the disease, but al get beaten down by it, too. You know, we suffer, and um, because we love you. We hurt. We really hurt. So that's my, my, my story on, on step one that was profound. And do you want me to go into two? And then, Okay. And then our second step, because we came to believe that power greater than ourselves could restore us to sanity... And, um, my insanity with the kids was that I could make them safe. If they did what I told them to do, and it was all, you know, it's all an illusion, but it was an illusion that I believed, so the reason for for me that's insanity, when you believe something that's not true, to be true. And I thought that I could keep the kids safe, and, um... You know, the day comes when you know you can't. I I used to kiddingly say, and I meant it, though, I would like to have a nice box or cell in the basement, and I would put the kids in there, and I would bring very, very good food down to them, and we'd have nice videos with the VCR, and we'd have a very nice stereo, and their friends could come and visit in this controlled environment, and then I knew things would be okay. And, of course, it was a joke, but you know what? If I could have really made that happen, I would have given it a really good shot, you know. And so that was, I've got lots of examples of insanity, but that was one of them. But I had the illusion that there was something I could do to keep my kids safe. And when you really, I guess that goes back to surrender. When you really surrender, you realize there is absolutely nothing you can do to control another person. And... I've learned that in the program I've learned there are two things in life that I have any control over. I used to have control over everything or thought I did, but now I know there are two things. One is my relationship with my higher power, and the other one is my attitude. That's it. And if you knew what I thought I could control, you know, that's really quite a cut. I guess I'll turn two over to you. Thank you.
0: I've turned Linda into New York as a carrier. None of us were alcoholic when we met Linda. I wasn't an alcoholic when I met her. Our children were not alcoholics. I think she carries the disease, and uh, (laughs) we're trying to have her inoculated, but we have not found a place yet where we can where we can do that. Uh, I had a lot of problems in my drinking. And and they were the problems that you expect drunks to have. I got arrested. I got in fights. I got in money difficulty. I was a gambler, a pretty good gambler, so that helped my money, uh, I thought. And uh, sometimes it didn't, but most of the time it did. I used to make money playing pool. Now I played with Schooley the other night. That would not be a good way to make money. the, uh, when I came to Alcoholics Anonymous, uh, it was a revelation to me to find out that I had a disease and that it was incurable and that I had to, for the rest of my life, put certain principles into action in my life if I wanted my life to be okay. I thought it would be horrible. I didn't like people who didn't drink. I didn't trust people who didn't drink. I didn't like being around an audience. I mean, I wanted to hang out with people who were doing the same thing I was doing, you know, so that they wouldn't report on me. If I wanted to drink in the morning, I didn't want to be around two or three people that thought that was not what to do. You know, I don't need an audience. Uh, but when I came to Alcoholics Anonymous, I saw the people who quit. They were still having fun. They were alive. It was, the humor was uh, was good for me to hear. You know, their lives were not over. They were, you know, they seemed uh, they were attractive. Many of them had jobs that I thought were wonderful jobs. They owned houses. You know, I mean, their lives were in a lot better shape than mine was. So even though I was powerless, I was excited about the fact that I now had a program. I was excited about the fact that I thought I knew what my problem was. I mean, you know. I mean, I thought my problem was I was an asshole. Uh, I was always in trouble. I was one of these kids that was attention deficit. You know, I was in grade school. I got thrown out of grade school about 15 times. I was always in trouble. I couldn't keep my mouth shut. It wasn't bad stuff. It was just stuff. And, uh, you know, and I got to high school and I was smart, but I, you know, so I I got by. And... uh, so when I came to AA, I really did come to believe that a power greater than myself to restore me to sanity. That power was AA. Uh, I had uh, a difficult relationship with the church. Uh, once I learned about sex and drinking, the church and I did not get along as well as, as we might have. And uh, so I, I really didn't want much to do with, and, uh, with church. But they made a distinction about spirituality, and I thought I could, you know, maybe deal with that. But I was pretty uncomfortable even with spirituality. When the meetings got talking about too much God, I went to the, we used to break in two groups, and I'd go to the other group, (laughs) hoping that they weren't talking too much about God at that moment. Uh, But I really came to believe that AA would restore me to sanity. I came to believe that my sponsor, I have the same sponsor that I have when I walked in the front door. Which is not too many people. My sponsor's over almost 50 years. So 50 years in August, and uh, he's 84 years old and uh, still going strong. So well, I think he'll, I think he'll be there for it. And he was a great guy. Just he is a great guy. Was just a wonderful. We went over for coffee just before. We go over once or twice a week for coffee. Linda's over there about as much as I am. His wife was Linda's sponsor for many years before she died, and uh, so it was with great hope that I thought, "Okay, I got the problem aa has got the answer, and if I've got the if A's got the answer, the rest of the problems in my life ought to go away." Well, I had problems with work, I had problems with sex, I had problems with money, I had problems with gambling, I had problems with being married, I had problems with being a father. Other than that, I had no
1: problems.
0: (laughs) I really didn't even know about those problems. I I had all those problems in my first nine months, and I never noticed them. Those problems were not on my first inventory. The first four-step I took when I was sober three or four months didn't have those. I I wasn't... um, Married when I took my first four step, and I wasn't a father when I took my first four step. But the other issues, the work problems and the money problems I had, I just my first four step was about all the horrible things I had done in my life that I was ashamed of, that I was that I had told no one about, and that wasn't what the book recommend. Only what the book recommends, but but it, it helped me. Okay. even, you know, if you have a good attitude, even though you sometimes don't do it perfectly, you still get benefited by doing the process. I did the best I could and it was okay. But after I was sober a while, the problems that I had in sobriety started to cause me great difficulty. I had uh, I had a lot of difficulty with work. I had trouble getting to work. I had trouble getting up in the morning. I had trouble staying at work. I had some trouble working at work. other than that, I did well at work uh, I don't know what that was. It's not a problem that that most people have, but it was a problem that i had i I don't know, and I don't know if I was lazy or whether I was scared or I didn't know exactly what it was, but I was not a very good worker and uh, so once I was sober about a year and a half. My inventory started to change and I started to have, you know, by that time we had our first child and I was starting to have arguments at home. Linda thought I I went to AA too much and then she thought I didn't have a very good program, uh, which I thought was none of your business. And uh, uh, she wondered if one of the places I was supposed to practice the program was in our home. I thought, well, that's none of your business either. But... uh, and uh, so I had these problems, and I, I started to work on them. And I, I didn't want to have them, so I started to hide them. Now, when I first came in AA, I had a wall built up between you and me. I built this wall up so you couldn't see me. You couldn't see the inner. It says, you like me, but you only like me because I let you see what you see. If you could see everything about me, you'd hate me because I hate me. <laughs> And who knows more what a terrible person I am than me? I was comparing my insides with your outsides. Okay, But when I came in AA, I, I hurt enough that I tore that wall down. And I said, hey, come and get me. I don't care who you are or where you come from, but come and get me and help me not be who I am anymore. I can't stand it five more minutes. And for the first time in my life, I shared all of me with someone else. I told them about all the things that I thought made me different, all the things that I thought made me dirty, all the things that I thought I did that were wrong. And in that process, I made a discovery. Is, you know, I'm not different. Okay? My personality may be different, but not my behavior, not my feelings, not my pain, not my alcoholism, not my experience. And for the first time, I started to have a hope that would work for you, would work for me. Before that time, I knew I was different. It never occurred to me that would work for you, would work for me. I was different. I was always different. I always looked for the difference. But when I came in and I surrendered and I tore down my wall and I allowed you in, in my fifth step, I, I, I felt the same. I felt similar. I felt enough the same that I thought AA could work for me. But when I started to have problems in sobriety, I started to build my wall back up. I said, thank you very much for helping me with my drinking problem, but stay out of my sex life. Thank you very much for helping me with my drinking problem, but stay out of my finances. Stay out of my parenting. Stay out of my marriage. Stay out of my job. And brick by brick, sober in AA, I built my wall back up. And I found myself feeling separate, going to many meetings of Alcoholics Anonymous, reading the book, having sponsees, doing as good a job as I could with the steps at the time. I found myself, this was kind of almost unconscious. It wasn't like I, I was going to go against AA. I just, I just did it instinctively. I had always hid things that I was afraid of that I didn't know what to do with. And all of a sudden, I started to have problems in sobriety that I didn't know how to deal with them, so I started to hide them. I was telling my sponsor about 65% of what was going on. Now, I know in Iceland you tell your sponsors 100%, and I, I think that that is very good that you do that. But I was only telling myself about 65%. I wasn't strong enough. To be able to even tell myself the truth of what was going on. I wasn't able to see the truth of what was going on. So, and I think that's just the way it is. I, I think that that's the way it is for many of us. We don't, You don't get well all at once. You don't get rid of all the problems all at once. You, take, you get rid of the big chunks, and when you get rid of the big chunks, you can start to see the dogs. <laughs> I was getting rid of the elephants. You know, I couldn't see the dogs. <laughs> But during the time, uh, oh God, during the time that I had these problems and they were affecting me and I wasn't making much progress, I stopped believing in the second step. I believed it for you, but not for me. I no longer believed God was going to restore me to sanity because I was three years sober and in trouble. I thought AA was going to solve all my problems, but I'm three or four years sober, and I got a lot of problems. so it doesn't look like they're going to go away. It doesn't look like AA' is the answer. Maybe I am really screwed up. Maybe I need more. I mean, I've all maybe, maybe I'm different. And for quite a while, I felt somewhat isolated, even though I was right in the middle of AA. Even though I had a sponsor, even though I was doing some of the right things, and I think to some degree all of us have had part of that experience. I think that that's just part of. I just think that's part of the experience. But what I didn't know, and I'll talk about later, is that I had when I when I was to change these things. When I had the very big change in my life at six or seven seven years of sobriety, I had to go back and find step two. And I didn't know that I had lost it. Because I always believed it for us. I just stopped believing it for me. Which is not interesting...
1: Yeah. Okay, step three is um, made a decision to turn our will and our lives over to the care of God as we understood Him. And, um,
0: you want to turn your will over to me?
1: See what I have to put up with. <laughs> Um, In that step, the word that I liked and still like the most is the word care. And when I think of how I am when I take care of something, I really try to give my full attention to that, and I try to be very gentle and nurturing and tending to the problem or the issue or the person um, as much as I can. And um, if I try to do that, I can imagine that my higher power does that a whole lot better than I do that. And so there's a great comfort in in that word for me. Um, And the other thing about it is I don't believe that if, let's say this morning I didn't get up and I didn't, you know, say some prayers and turn my life over. I don't believe that because I I didn't do that this morning, God says, "Uh uh-uh, you're out of my life today. I'm not going to. You know, if nothing to do with you today, you're just going to sort of flounder on your own. I don't believe that happens. Um, I believe I am in the care of God at all times. Whether I make that decision daily, three times a day, monthly, yearly, whatever, I believe I am in God's care. The thing that I think step three is for me is it's a step of cooperation. There's a plan for me, and my job is to show up for it, be present to it, and cooperate with it. Um, When the plan is something I like, it's very easy for me to do that. I can do that with gusto, I mean, I can do that with great enthusiasm and I look really good. But the days when it isn't to my liking, either I'm not feeling well, the people in my life are having issues, or they're not behaving, Um, (laughs) once in a while, it's my turn. When I don't like the way life is going, it is still my job to cooperate with it, to be present to it, and to embrace it. And that's one of the things that the program has taught me. I That has probably been the hardest thing for me, because I like to have my way. I really like to have my way. I, the, but the best thing for me is when I have my way and it pleases you too, then it's perfect. In other words, you do exactly what I want you to do, but you like it perfect um but my job in step three and i've learned that it is not always going to be my way but my job is to cooperate embrace it and do it gracefully and not have to make it where okay i'm not going to get my way but everybody else is going to pay for it um that doesn't work for me it doesn't work for you either but it doesn't work for you okay thank you
0: Uh, turned my will and my life over, made a decision to turn my will and my life over to the care of God as I understood Him. When I came in early in AA, um, it seemed like my whole attention was on mostly my drinking, mostly my drinking life. And so I, ha- I, d- I had very little issue about turning my drinking life over to the care of God as I understood Him and the care of Alcoholics Anonymous. I just was, I loved AA. A lot of people, the gift for me early in sobriety was that I thought AA was just fine. I worked with a lot of young people and they didn't like AA. You know, they didn't identify. I identified. I had trouble living the program, but I didn't have trouble going to the meetings and I didn't have trouble with the people. I liked the steps. I didn't always do them, (laughs) but I liked them. And, (laughs) and uh, so forth. But I really didn't have any doubt that what they were talking about for me about, you know, that I, you know, I had screwed up most of the things in my life, such as it was at that time through drinking. I knew I was, I needed to quit. And I knew that I couldn't drink. I just never been I mean, I could out drink many of my friends, but I couldn't drink with any control. I had lost that ability. I had gotten in trouble time after time after time after time. I had just lost the ability to make that decision. I knew I was done. Okay. Uh the idea of turning my will on my life over about I wanted my life to be better. I mean, why the hell else would I go to Alcoholics Anonymous? Why would I admit that I'm powerless? Why would I have hope that God was going to restore me to sanity? What did I want to do? I wanted to be a man. I wanted to be like my father. I wanted to have a family. I wanted to have a career. I wanted to have, you know, to be a success. I wanted wanted to be very different, (laughs) very different than what I was at that moment. And I really knew that what they were talking about in AA and the principles they were talking about would move me in the general direction that I needed to go. I had had no argument with that. And for a long time, things were just fine. But when I started to have the problems in sobriety, when I started to hide them, when I started to have the unmanageability, when I identified the unmanageability, I thought, oh, I'll just use the steps on the unmanageability, you know, And I'll get rid of those, too, just like I got rid of drinking. You know, so I would take these issues on. I would take work on, or I would take being a father on, you know. And I made very little success early on with these issues. You know, I make some success. I would take two steps forward and one step backwards. I felt like I was on the down escalator walking up. If I wasn't walking pretty fast, I kept going back down. And... The other problem I had is I, I was doing a number of things in gambling and some of the other areas of my life that I knew I would have to clean up if, you know, if I was going to be the kind of man that I wanted to be. And uh, so it was like a uh, knock on the door and God says, who's there? And I said, God is Bob. And God says, what do you want? And I said, well, I want to turn myself in, you know. I'm having a lot of trouble. (laughs) And it seems like the people who have a better relationship with you than I have are doing better than I'm doing. So I want to turn myself in. And God's going to say, okay. And then you know what God's going to say? I'm going to say to God the same thing that all my sponsors say to me when they come over to the house. What do I do? And what do you think God's going to say? Get up in the morning. Go to work. Stay at work. Work at work. Be kind and loving to your children. Be kind and loving to your wife. Get on a budget. Don't spend more money than you make. Stop gambling. Stop smoking. Hell, if I could do all those things, I wouldn't need God. You know, I mean, I was... I mean... mean, So... My idea was, what's the use of developing a relationship with God if you can't fulfill the conditions of the relationship? So I felt if I open myself up to God, he's going to ask me to do a whole bunch of things I've been trying to do and can't do. So as soon as I get my act cleaned up, maybe I'll go over to God. But right now, I'm screwed. I don't know. What, you know, I'm caught in the middle. And I stayed in the middle for a long time. And I mean, I think a lot of us think that if we really turn ourselves over to God, we're going to end up in China as missionaries or we're going to, you know, it's going to be a very dull life, you know. And uh, and I really think we have an idea that, that there there isn't any fulfillment of ourselves in that process. Certainly no sex, probably no money, but for sure no fulfillment. And... Uh, uh, and so I, I really think that I was afraid of God. I think I was afraid of what I would have to do. I think I think I felt like I couldn't do the things that I really needed to do. And I, I think we have to. I think a lot of us are conflicted around those things. And and many of us don't have that conversation. We don't have it with. Uh, I know I didn't have it with my sponsor. And I and I haven't with the regularity that I wish I had. I've had some of that conversation with my sponsees. You know, uh, and and now I'm starting to do that with more depth. You know, I'm not as worried about staring. We're just having a conversation about what they think about their relationship with their higher power, what they're afraid of or not afraid of. And I think a lot of us are out of touch with our values, especially a lot of the younger people today. They haven't had quite as traditional an upbringing. You know, I feel like we're certainly in the United States, I feel like we're losing... Some of our, our contact with core values uh, uh, and a lot of these kids who start using at 12 and 13 and 14 to 15 years old aren't, weren't connected with anything, you know, when they came in the program. So uh, I agree with Linda when I finally woke up at seven or eight years, which I will talk about later. Uh, I realize that my life, I'm an ant on a log going down a river. It looks like I'm steering it, but it's an illusion. My life is right now, has always been, and will always be in the care of God as I understand it. That's the relationship. It's the nature. That's just the way it is. And I really think that part of what happens to us as we walk through our recovery is we become more aware. We become more conscious. And it was, as we strip away some of the things that stop us from seeing, and we start to feel ongoingly that connection. Where when we're early in our recovery or not in recovery, our egos are the only thing we can feel. And when our egos are in charge, we're separate. We're different. We're in our tanks with the slit, with the machine gun, you know, driving through life, shooting people. We do not feel connected. We don't feel part of. We don't feel God-centered. We feel different and antagonistic. And those are the two choices we seem to have. Have a God-centered life and suffer the consequences, or a self-centered life and suffer the consequences. Very different experiences in those things. But it takes a degree of trust that many of us do not have to turn your will and your life over to the care of of your higher power and to rely on it. Most of us, if people ask us, we experience a great deal of fear, a great deal of anxiety, a great deal of pain, a great deal of stress. Uh, those are not symptoms of having a strong relationship with a higher power. Those are, not, I mean, those are symptoms of people who feel that they have to make certain things happen in the world or the world's not going to be okay, And that, which is how I often feel like I've got to get the deal done. This is for money. I better handle it. You know, I feel like I've got my I'm in the real estate development business and real estate investment business. I have, you know, and the management business. I have three or four hundred employees that we have. You know, this is not a, you know, you have to meet the overhead and do different things. And, you know, you kind of feel like it's I have to, I have to, we have, you know, and all of a sudden you feel like you're in charge of this bloody thing. When. That's kind of an illusion, too. You'll certainly have responsibilities in that process, but you are not God. And and, uh, uh, and when you feel like the buck doesn't stop with you, I mean, when, there, when you don't have to explain everything that happens in life, when you can trust, when you can just have a sense that it's going to be okay, when you can allow other people to have their experience and their feelings. I used to, every time Linda would get upset with me, which was fairly often, uh, when, when I would go give AA talks, I would go on 20 weekends a year giving AA talks. You know, and, and she'd always say, I wish you wouldn't go. And what I'd hear was, you are a jerk. You're leaving us again. I don't like it. Goodbye. But what she meant was, I wish you weren't going. <laughs> okay. And I would think that I would have to change your mind. So that she wouldn't feel that way. And that wasn't my job. It's not, you know, to have someone allow someone to have the dignity of being where they are and who they are and how they see some of that. Is, it's not my business. But for a long time, it was my business. How my children thought, how they felt, what they said. Controlling all those things. And so there's a... Uh, to Today, what it means to me to turn my will and my life over to the care of God is is to try to trust what is going on as being okay. To have a kind of sense that what I'm in front of today is okay. That the universe is unfolding as it should. That my job is adjusting to that. They told me early on in AA there's two ways to be happy. Get what you want, which isn't all that likely. Or change the way you react to whatever does happen. And they said, you can do that. And that isn't dependent upon any other human being. That was a fascinating idea for me. I didn't do it very often early on. But I do it today. I really have a sense that my job is just to be in front of what's going on and to adjust myself to what that is and try to maintain an attitude that it's okay. And and to me, that's how my relationship of turning my will and my life over to the care of God shows up. Or whether I'm able to just to be in the day, be in the moment, I was always running away from yesterday, running towards tomorrow. What had to happen tomorrow to make my life okay? My salvation was in the future. It was never now. And today, it's now. So um, that's about. And then we're going to do questions, and that's about an hour, isn't it? Or not quite, but.
1: We'll do that. It's funny when you do that because I don't know what you're saying to me. (laughs) Trying to answer appropriately. Um, my name is Linda, and I'm a member of Hi, everybody. Step 4 and 5, I'm going to address them briefly just from the standpoint of al and um, then Bob will take over from the AA point. Um, when I first came to al I had absolutely, positively no intentions of ever taking Step 4 and 5. You didn't know that. I didn't make that clear to you, but that was the way it was going to be. I was not going to do it. I didn't need them. I was raised a Catholic. I had been um, many, many, many times to confession, and that's what this seemed like to me, and therefore I wasn't doing it. I didn't tell you that. As time went on, people started to assume that I had done steps four and five because I never corrected them otherwise, and I liked the fact that they assumed I had done them because it sort of let me off the hook. In a very funny way, it did, but in a very tremendous way, it didn't because now I not only had not taken steps four and five, but I knew what a phony I was, that I was lying to all of you, and so my dishonesty was even worse than not having even taken step four and five. So finally I decided, I, I got in too much pain, and I, I thought I've got to work this program the way it's supposed to be worked, and I did four, and then three weeks later did five. And the thing that, I don't know if it's for sure harder for al because I, I'm not on both sides of that, but I think most of the time the al I talk to, it's very difficult, it's very easy for them to find all their defects of character. But it's very difficult for them to find any assets. And I think that's part of what our illness looks like. We lose ourselves in the alcoholic. We, loo- we lose who we are. And we don't even know what we like and what we don't like. And as far as do we have any assets, I remember going to Bob and asking him, because the woman who I went and did my fifth step with insisted that I write down assets. And I remember going to him and asking him if I had any. Isn't that sad? You know? But that's what our, that's what our illness looks like. So, I guess the main thing I want to say on four is i I believe it's very important that you include the things that you've done that you're not so proud of and the things that you've done it's that are your good points, so include you know your defects and your assets i don't know what's going on and offer i'll just talk loud. Um, so, I think for Alan and I we have to include both because it's very difficult we we tend to get put ourselves down a whole lot more. And then for step five, my first fifth step was pretty much what Bob talked about. You know, it was getting rid of sort of those big boulders, the big issues. And over the years, I've been able to do other fourth and fifth steps, and um, they've, become more, um, they've become more refined. I've taken a fifth step, fourth and fifth steps on our marriage, where I really looked at the, the aspects of our marriage my part, his part, and what I could do to improve. Um, I took a fourth and a fifth step on anger issues that I had around my mother, um, where I just focused on that. And I even took a fourth and a fifth step on aging. I don't like getting older. There were some issues that I was looking at that I didn't like about it. And so I went back to what I've been taught. This is how you get rid of things that don't work for you, and this is how you come to acceptance and how you come to see God in the situation. So I am now of the opinion that, you know, there was a woman in our group who used to say, she, she'd drive me crazy too, she'd always say, well, if you haven't taken the first step, why don't you try it before you say you don't need one? And, oh, she ir- <clears throat> irritated me. But now I really give you that same advice. If you haven't tried one, try it. It really will set you free. Four and five of the steps that we really, we come nose to nose with who we are, good and bad. We look at it honestly. It's... Knowing from my experience, I was in the program seven years before I took a fourth step it's a lot scarier in that place than it was after I took one. I'll turn it over to Bob.
0: Hi, I'm Bob. I'm an alcoholic. Uh, The question is, if you're married, do you have to do an inventory? Uh, or do you have one done for you? (laughs) Uh, I have done uh, probably eight inventories since I've done an AA. (laughs) A lot of activity. Uh, And the first inventory that I've done uh, wasn't very insightful. It was important, but it wasn't very insightful. It got rid of but I look back on it, um, and it accomplished quite a bit. It, it, there was, I, had, I had a lot of guilt around uh, the behavior and, and uh, conduct that I had prior to getting sober. And I relieved myself of much of that guilt in the process of doing a, the, the early fourth and fifth step, even though by the big book standards about whether I covered all the bases and did the columns correctly and had the right you know words, I didn't. Um, but I felt a great relief. Not only did I feel a sense of forgiveness, which I didn't expect, I really had a sense that the reason I went through that was because I was going to change. And it was kind of reminding myself why I was going about this process. I mean, I think that's good <laughs> that we, you know, that if I was going to change, I really had to know what I was going to change. And uh, my second 4 step was when I was about uh five years sober and my... The third, fourth step was when I was seven years sober, and I'm not exactly sure when I'm going to talk about my big change, which is, I think, during six and seven, when we'll we get into the six and seven steps. Uh, but, but but as far as getting into the causes and conditions of, of the aspects of my sobriety, I didn't really understand the causes and conditions of my unmanageability and my sobriety until I was five and six and seven and eight years sober. I didn't understand it at three years. You can't understand it all at two years or three years. Uh, the book says that the you know the doing the first four step is simply about a start in a lifetime process of doing an inventory. If this is a spiritual walk, if this is a process, if this is a spiritual awakening, we're going to be inventorying. We don't have to be anal about it. We don't have to be. Perfectionist about it, but we're going to be doing some sense of inventorying our whole life. I mean, one of the great assets that I think we have in recovery is if we have a healthy questioning of ourselves. Not a neurotic questioning. Not a, you know, people say you're putting yourself down. You're, you're, you know, demeaning yourself. You're not, you know, some of the times the women movement look at AA and said, you know, this powerlessness is just a tool to keep women now, different organi- you know, other organizations look at us and say you're too religious, you know. Uh, I don't know how to answer other people's views of us, but from, uh, from my point of view of, of, of recovery, having a balanced questioning. We are people who have lived our, we are flawed people. We have, you know, our, many of us, our behaviors were way the heck out there. Bad, you know, had bad consequences for us and had bad consequences for everybody around us. We're capable of rationalizing a very broad spectrum of behavior. And uh, so we are people who should rightly question our thinking because we can rationalize a lot of things. Plus, how healthy it is to be able to run some of these things by our advisors. It's just, I mean, if you can do that, not only do you have a more open life, uh, but you're going to get input. And you're going to be less likely to get isolated and way out there. Uh, so I, I think the process of inventorying is enormously important. Uh, we have over the last number of years, AA has become much more formal in how it approaches a lot of things. You know, there are, there are kind of movements within organizations. Uh, Within all organizations, there tends to be a movement towards orthodoxy. You can see it in churches. You can see it in lots of different places. And I, just, I, I think I see that tendency in all anonymous. So they're, they're, in, in orthodoxy, there gets to be kind of a right way to do it and a wrong way to do it. Uh, and while our book is, instruct, is, our, is our basic text, I want to say that you can sometimes get too formal. You can sometimes get too rigid about how you do these things. As important as the form of what you do is the spirit of what you do, the heart that you bring to the matter. My sponsor was really big on an attitude. If he, You know, he'd say, give me a person with a good attitude, and they can make mistakes. They don't have to do it. Everybody makes mistakes. I don't care if you have a good attitude or a bad attitude. You aren't going to do this thing perfectly. This is bigger than any of us. This is, you can't contain this. So I'm going to give you my, my uh, five-minute lecture on... Uh, Unorthodoxy. Uh, you are having a lot of people come to you and talk to you about the steps. You know, you've had uh, Carl and you've had uh, who? Uh, Sharon and Kate. You know, Sharon and Casey and you know lots of. And uh, you had Karen Nord, who's in my AA group at home. And you, yeah, and and so I. I all these people are, are good friends of mine, and I know them. But, you know, over the next five or six or seven years, you are going to have 15 or 20 people come to talk to you about the steps. And if you went to a big convention in the United States, and you went back to the table where they sell tapes, you'd have all these different people teaching on the steps. Well, when I came in, we didn't have any of that. And yet we had good recovery. Things were not as structured as they are today, and we had good recovery. There's a tendency, uh, so some people would give you the impression that all you need to know in life is 164 pages, and your life will be complete. That's not my view. I, I think this is the menu. You can starve to death eating the menu. <laughs> you need the food. The food is of God. The food is spiritual spiritual. Uh, you might never find the food if you don't have the directions. So don't, you know, don't hear me. I don't want to make it sound like I don't want the directions. I want the direction, but it's a description. As the holy man said, when the master points to the moon, all the idiots sees is the finger. You know, the finger is not the object. The moon is the object. So we get the impression that all you need is the right instructions and it will all be okay. Well, if the steps were mechanical, every time you had a problem, all you'd have to do is say the third step prayer and click your heels, and you'd be back in Kansas. There'd be no, there'd be no problems. Well, sometimes when you say the third step prayer, no one's home. It's not mechanical. God doesn't answer just when you ring the bell its I mean, that's childish to think that you can somehow reduce these profound spiritual principles to mechanics. Now, it's better doing them mechanically than not doing them. So don't listen to me say, don't do them mechanically. I've done them mechanically. When you're dry and you're having a tough time and you're down, do them mechanically. (laughs) Because that's all you can do. You bring what you have. You have to, you know. But... There's something you have to bring to the process of doing the steps beyond the form. And it's something to do with your heart. It's something to do with your integrity. It's something to do with your honesty. It's something to do with your openness. It's something to do with humility. It's something to do with teachability. But it's more a matter of the heart. The process of the steps and the process of recovery is a a process of being, not doing. Most of us want to know what to do. The doing will come when you alter your being. Your being gets altered when you are touched by God, when you are touched by love, when you are touched by the program. Who you be changes. Time and time again... Give me those glasses, huh? Time and time again in the program, the, the book talks about, uh, you know, on page uh, 25, the great fact for us is nothing less. That we have had a deep and effective spiritual experience which has revolutionized our whole attitude towards life, towards our fellows, and towards God's universe. You know, I mean, this is transformational. This is just not a linear change. One, two, three. It's one, two, eight thousand. I mean, it is, it is you know, it is a very big deal. When uh, Silkworth talks about early on the deal, this is very early in the program, and Silkworth talks about, he says, on the, he's talking about unless an entire psychic change can take place, there's little hope. And then he says, on the other hand, strange as it may seem to those who don't understand, once a psychic change has occurred, the very same person who seemed doomed, who had so many problems he despaired the spirit of ever solving them, suddenly finds himself able to control his desire for alcohol, the only effort be necessary to follow a few simple rules. Suddenly, it is when, when, when these things happen of God, it is like we're different. We're, we're not the same people. And when, it's, and when it's changed, you can see it. You can see it in the eyes of the people. You can, you know, we used to joke in treatment. You know, you'd tie a guy up and you'd put him in the trunk of the car. You'd drive him out and he'd spend the, two, the first two weeks planning how to kill his wife if he ever got out. But in the third week, something happens. And all of a sudden, he's talking to the new person. He's helping them. He's volunteering stuff that he was hiding. You know, <clears throat> very different. You know, not the same man. You know, just in a week. You know, they're very different. So, uh, the impact of the program comes from God comes from the spirituality, comes from a power greater than ourselves. Not from the form. The form is an assistance. The form leads you to the place to do the work, but the work is not the form. Now, you know, so in saying that, the best way is to, is to engage yourself with the form. Okay? But have some freedom. Have some play in that process. Uh, so, you know, a first, so for us to... Uh, you know, if we're going to get our lives in the kind of shape and find happiness and balance and wholeness in our lives, we need to know what's wrong. In order for us to find out where our flaws are, where our defects of character, where our shortcomings are, what doesn't work, inventorying is the process. The uh, most conservative members of Alcoholics Anonymous think God wrote the big book. And Bill Wilson wrote the 12 and 12 in his office. That the big book is the real thing. And the 12 and 12, eh. Okay. I don't believe that. I believe that what we have is Bill Wilson the four years of sobriety writing the book. I believe that he was guided. You, no one's smart enough with four years of sobriety to write with the depth. I am a student of, of uh, Eastern philosophy, and I read a lot of different spiritual and, and religious material, it just comes back and back and back how wonderfully written and how profound and how wise this what Bill Wilson wrote. And I believe, from every fiber of my body and from my experience, that he was guided. I also believe that when he wrote... The the 12 and 12, seven years later, even though it was published in 1953, he wrote it in 1946 when the grapevine started as a series of articles and didn't come out as a book until afterwards, that he was talking about just trying to deepen the instructions that we had in the book. And you can see different influences on those things. So the same man who wrote the four-step in the big book wrote a very different four-step inventory in the 12 and 12. So obviously he didn't think there was only one way to do it. With that said, most of us today follow the instructions in the big book and do the columns. We do the columns on fears and the or on resentments and the columns on fears and the columns on sex. And we do the fourth column to talk about what was our part, which is the most. What we're trying to do when you go through, if I have a criticism of being too formal, what I find is some of these young people, when they come to me today, they, I feel like it's an artificial process sometimes. I feel like when they've give me their fifth step, it's too rigid. I don't feel like I get to know them. I don't feel like um, they've dumped the whole load. They're using only the words that are described in the in the in the book. And I'm saying that if you were telling me your story, you'd use more words. Don't restrict yourself to only the words in the book. You know, use the words in the book, but use your own words so that you can you know so that you can tell me. What hurts? What's wrong? What doesn't work? What's, what are you afraid of? I, I, I want to know both those, those things that you do. So don't restrict yourself. You know, go through that. So, it, the fourth and fifth step are, I think, the great rites of passage in the, in the program. I think all of us feel more of a member when we have done the fourth and fifth step. We feel like more Growing up, you know, we feel like we really belong. We now have our spot when we've done the fourth and fifth step. That's a big piece of work. That's kind of the, one of the real initiations, the first step being maybe the key initiation, but the fifth, fourth and fifth step are like that in, in, in Rise of Passage. In our country, the fifth step, uh, and then I wanted to talk, just talk briefly about one other thing. Well, I'm going to send up a pamphlet that is, uh, uh, one of the one of the things that we now see going around are what are called step workshops and uh, uh, people will tell you that they started in different ways. My understanding how some of this started is that there's a old timer by the name of Cecil Corrigo and, and uh, his sponsor. They kind of co-sponsored each other. Elmer. They both had about 53 years. Elmer just died from Prince Albert, Saskatchewan, in Canada. And in order to do some of the prison work, Elmer uh, wrote out these. Mimeograph sheets that referred to the big book, you know, read, chapter, read the doctor's opinion and then it would ask you a series of questions on the doctor's opinion. Those got passed around through Denver and through some active young people all over the country. And then about 10 years ago, Dr. Paul, who's, you know, the stories in the big book, Dr. Alcoholic Adding, uh, Dr. Paul published them in a little, in a little, uh, pamphlet. Uh, and he refers to his friend in Texas who sends him lot of this material. And what it is, is a 16-week workshop on the steps, using the big book. The way we use it, and I don't know if everybody does it the way we do it, but the way we do it is we get 10 to 20 people, although right now one of the groups is 70, and we say, look, we're going to go through the steps. We're not going to read about them, we're going to take them. Okay, we're going to do the work that's in this pamphlet. Okay, And once you're in this group, you're in. I don't want you to say that you're coming here and then don't come. You say you're in this group, you're in. Once we start the group, no one can get in the group. So after the first meeting, maybe between the first and second, but after the second meeting, uh uh-uh. If you attend this group, you promise you will do it one more time to help someone else. Now you want some old timers in the group. You want some people who've got eight years and ten years and twelve years. And then you want not just everybody new, but it works no matter, you know, cause the instructions, you know, are in the book. It is pretty good. And then we go through and we, where the book says to kneel, we kneel. When the book says to pray, we pray. When the book says we admitted we were powerless, we admit that we're So we actually use the words and do the work as we go through the book. When we get to the fourth step, there's about four weeks or five weeks in the book to, to do the fifth step, or the fourth step. We do not do the fifth step with each other. You make an appointment with your sponsor. Or whoever you're going to take the fifth step with. So there isn't that sort of violation. But what happens is you bond. You get closer during that process. And it's a great process for people who are kind of having a flat spot. It just, it just picks you up. It just gives you like a steroid shot or something like that. It just kind of, kind of does that. And I'm going to send, uh, a couple of those pamphlets up here and, and and that'll give you another option. So the fourth and fifth step are, uh, I love what the book says. It says, up until this time you have had some ideas of God, now you start to have an experience of God. When you are done with your fifth step, the barriers, when I talked about I tore down my wall. I completed the tearing down of my wall. I no longer had a barrier between me and you. And I was starting to restore my life. <clears throat> I was starting to restore my relationship with my God, my relationship with myself, and my relationship with you. It is an enormous uh passage it is it is the opening of the door i think for the whole second half of the program It is you know it is the first half we kind of you know powerlessness and, and uh, surrender hope you know in the second step and then turning our will over the, the care of god and, and frankly the, the the program rests on how well those three steps and i just want to say one other thing sometimes the dependency in the modern program i think to keep going back to step four and five uh, when things are bad. And what I find is is most of us have the information that's in 4 and 5. We know what's wrong. We don't need necessarily more inventory or more information. We have the information. We need to change. What we often don't have is step 1, 2, and 3. And the reason that nothing moves when you go back to an inventory, when I just go back to step 4, is because 1, 2, and 3 are not alive at that moment. If you really want things to move, you should go back and find out whether 1, 2, and 3 are alive when you go to do 4 and 5 and 6 and 7. Because if, you, if 1, 2, and 3 are not alive, when you do 4 and 5, you're not going to get any result out of 6. You, you are not probably going to get the whole result that you would might hope to have in 6 and 7. I'm going to rush ahead and do 6 and 7, and then Linda can add to What I want to add to this, and this is kind of funny, usually when we do these, when I do this weekend, I give my talk Friday night, and people know the details, more details of my life. Today, we don't have that format, so it's kind of awkward because I'm going to give my talk tonight.